Good morning, guys. Welcome to the Friday morning men's breakfast without breakfast this morning, but we're happy that you're here nonetheless as we continue our study of the Gospel of Mark. It's been an interesting time, definitely an interesting week to have so little contact with so many people, and we continue to fight an enemy that is unseen, this virus that we can't exactly get a handle on. But for folks who follow Jesus, like us, it should be a reminder that we also have an unseen enemy that we always do battle with, and that the way we do battle best is with prayer and the Word of God. So today, we'll be looking at the Word of God in Mark chapter 12. Before we do, let's pray. Jesus, thank you that even in an uncertain time like we are now experiencing, that you remain sovereign. Thank you that, God, you are all-powerful all the time, that there is no boundary to your ability and power, to your knowledge, to your righteousness, to your kingdom. There are no, there are no edges with you, Lord. So we thank you that as, even as we meet and as we begin to think about and talk about your word, that you are here with us, and we ask that your Holy Spirit would take your word and apply it in our lives. May we continue to be men who live our lives in following Jesus in the hope that we would honor him by both the way we live and the way we delight in what you're doing in our world and in our lives. So all these things we give you thanks for in the name of Jesus. Amen. So we're in, again, Mark chapter 12, verses 18 to 44. I'm going to break it up into three different readings because we're going to see three challenges, a warning, and an example in this passage today. So starting in chapter 12, verses 18 to 27, following along from what Max read and led us in last week, as Jesus begins to be questioned and challenged by some of the religious leader of, leaders of his day. Last week, it was the Pharisees and the Herodians. Uh, this week, it'll be another group or two of people who try to catch Jesus at his words, and we'll see how they do. So starting in verse 18, chapter 12 of Mark. And Sadducees came to him, who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. Amazing words. Jesus encounters the Pharisees. That's the group that first comes to him in this passage. Pharisees didn't believe that there was a resurrection, didn't believe in an afterlife the way that we believe in afterlife. They were not necessarily liberals. They were rather conservative in their beliefs and in their lifestyle. They simply denied that the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, said anything about resurrection. 
And the Sadducees believed that the first five books of the Bible were the truly authoritative part of Scripture. Resurrection to them seemed like a more recent idea. You read about resurrection in books like Daniel. And for them, that wasn't authoritative in the way that the Torah was authoritative. They were probably also concerned about the fact that because of Israel, the Jews being under the rule of Rome, and the constant desire to break free from that rule, and a history of a last hundred years or so of some episodes of revolt that were squashed by the Romans, they were probably concerned that there were some who believed in resurrection and who thought it would be willing to take the risk of revolt even if they died because they knew they would be raised again. The Sadducees didn't want that kind of thing motivating other revolts, other Jews raising the flag of national freedom against Rome. That's the kind of thing that we see even in our day, in Islamic jihadists willing to give their lives because they believe in resurrection, they'll have wonderful rewards awaiting them. So they come to Jesus in knowing that even in, in the time of the first century Judaism in Israel, that most people believed in resurrection, the Pharisees believed in resurrection and taught it, it was the Sadducees who didn't. And they come to Jesus with this question to see if they can trap him. They do it in, in what's typically a scribal form of, of question, posing a story to challenge someone's belief and seeing how they can interpret it in Scripture. Now, they're referring in this story to the Mosaic provision of Leverite marriage. It's found in Deuteronomy 25, verses 5 and 6, where it is written this way. If brothers dwell together, and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her, and take her as his wife, and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of the dead brother, and his, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. So they tailored this story to have seven husbands for this woman. They all die childless. At the end of the seven, seven being that perfect number, so a completion, it's literally been fulfilled, the command that we find in Deuteronomy. Whose wife will this woman be in the resurrection? Of course, the intention of the Sadducees is to somehow trap Jesus, to ridicule his answer, to make him seem foolish, not being tied to the first five books of the Bible. Jesus responds with two counter-questions, if you will, uh, and then he balances each one with a positive statement. He says, is this not the reason that you're wrong, because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God? Now, that's a pretty strong statement. I'd suggest that Jesus is doing what we would refer to as trash-talking the Sadducees. Sadducees, aren't you wrong? because you don't know the scriptures, and you don't know the power of God. You don't understand it. Now, if they had known the scriptures, they would understand the power of God, and they would believe in resurrection. But they're mistaken in their idea of resurrection, in part because they think probably that resurrection is simply a continuation of the life that we have now. If this woman dies and has been married to seven husbands, which one will she have when she gets to, to the afterlife? to heaven, to paradise. And Jesus reminds them in a, in a real sense that that's not the question. 
that's not what the issue is here because he says in the afterlife in the heavenly realms we're going to be like angels there won't be marriage the way we know it because resurrection isn't just a resuscitation of life it's transformation of life it's truly a new life and so he he states that in a positive way and then he asks them a second question he says have you not read in the book of moses in the passage about the bush so he goes right back again to the first five books of the Bible. He goes to Exodus. He goes to the place where they will understand is authoritative word of God. And God spoke to them saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And then he says, he is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong, he tells them. Again, he states that the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob aren't dead. They're alive. If they weren't alive, then all the covenant promises that God had made to them would have been meaningless. They wouldn't have any fruit. Now, Jesus isn't saying that they've already been raised from the dead. He's just saying they will not remain physically dead forever. He doesn't tell us the details of what it's like between now and Resurrection Sunday, or day, Sunday, the day of, of resurrection. He's just simply saying that salvation promised to the patriarchs in light of the covenant explains the assurance of our resurrection. And so he's applying, implying that the Sadducees are not able or are failing to appreciate the link between the covenant that God has made, his faithfulness, and the power that he has to do what he says he will do, in this sense, to resurrect the dead. He makes it clear that there is hope beyond the grave. Now, do you know of people who don't think there's anything beyond this life? That there is no afterlife? That we simply are annihilated? I know such people. I have some in my family. They just think, you die, you die, that's it. In fact, most people outside of the faith have a pretty fuzzy idea of what afterlife will be like. And you can know this by knowing that in most funeral homes, when they are asked what is the most requested song to be played during a funeral held at the funeral home, that's a funeral that's not religious in nature, that most requested song is the song Spirit in the Sky. Now, guys who are my age or so probably remember that song. It was written in 1969, written and recorded by Norman Greenbaum. It reached number three on the Billboard Top 100 chart. It sold two million copies. And Greenbaum used this very interesting musical technique. He had a Fender Stratocaster guitar with a built-in fuzz box into the body of the guitar. So the sound that it created was unique. And, and the rhythm of his playing it was quite interesting. But the, the lyrics are fascinating. Um, I'm not gonna sing them to you, don't, don't worry. I know it's not something you would wanna hear, but I will say them. Uh, here's how it starts. When I die and they lay me to rest, gonna go to the place that's the best. When I die, when I lay me down to die, going up to the spirit in the sky, then the chorus, going up to the spirit in the sky, that's where I'm gonna go when I die. When I die and they lay me to rest, gonna go to the place that's best. He continues, never been a sinner. I never sinned. I got a friend in Jesus. So you know that when I die, he's going to set me up with the spirit in the sky. Oh, set me up with the spirit in the sky. That's where I'm going to go when I die. And when I die and they lay me to rest, I'm going to go to the place that's the best. 
go to the place that's the best. You can see why people would have that sung at a loved one's funeral. It's kind of this sentimental idea that they're going to a good place. Norman Greenbaum, who wrote and recorded that song, wasn't a believer, not a Christian. In fact, he was a Jew, but at least he wasn't a, uh, a Sadducee. Sadducees got trash-talked by Jesus when they tried to trap him with their question. Maybe a scribe can do better. Let's see. Chapter 12 of Mark, verses 28 down to verse 34. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, and Jesus answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and that there is no other God besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and, and to love one neighbor, one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. So the scribe comes up to him, having heard his discussion with the Sadducees, and he asks what could well have been a sincere question. It may not be a challenge. We're not really exactly sure. He asks of the 613 or so statutes in Torah law, which one is most important? And Jesus gives an answer, an answer that isn't unique, not new. It's in the Bible itself. In fact, a generation before Jesus, a scribal leader named Hillel the Elder said this, quote, What you, you yourself hate, do not do to your neighbor. This is the whole law. The rest is commentary. Well, Jesus' response is a little different. He doesn't start with what you hate, but what you ought to do. He doesn't restart with how you relate to your neighbor, but how you relate to God. And so he says the most important thing is to love the Lord your God with everything that we have and your neighbor as yourself. And he gets that right out of Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5, and Leviticus chapter 9, verse 18. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, this from Leviticus, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So only the Lord our God is worthy of such complete devotion of our lives. Everything about us, our heart, our soul, our mind, our strength, loving him with everything that we have. To love God in this way is to seek God for his own sake, to recognize that he is worthy of everything that we could possibly give him, give him and to strive after finding our pleasure completely in him not by way of legal transaction, but by way of an act of the will and deciding that, yes, indeed, we will love the God that way. A love that really puts everything we are at his beck and call, that involves our entire personality in the service of God. A wholehearted devotion to expressing our concern about who he is and what he does 
more than ourselves. And then the second commandment, to love our neighbors as ourselves, meaning really that we find in our neighbor something that we will love because we're commanded to, but because God does as well. Jesus unpacked the whole idea of answering the question, who is my neighbor, that Jesus was asked a couple Sundays ago on Sunday morning. Uh, but we do know that that's what God has said. Who, to the question, who is our neighbor, the answer is look around. Everyone. There's no one who is not our neighbor. Perhaps even a Samaritan is our neighbor, which for a Jew would be hard to stomach. How do we know that God is pleased with that kind of life? How do we know that Jesus got it right? Well, we know because God said so. He, he pulled this right out of the Torah, Deuteronomy, Leviticus. But we also know because God has said so in other places. Hosea 6.6, 6, For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Proverbs 21.3, To do righteousness and justice is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. You know, the scribe acknowledged the wisdom of Jesus' response, and yet there's still something missing in the scribe. Jesus says to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. That's a pretty strong statement. You're not far. I mean, at this point, we'd have to wonder if that scribe might be closer even than the disciples were to the kingdom of God. But whatever the answer to that question might be, it's clear that at the end of the scribe's encounter, everybody who has come forward to challenge Jesus with a question gets the point. And so it says in verse 34, after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. No one. Everyone had already come, giving it their best shot. No one's going to try anymore. But you know the whole question of how we can love God with all our heart and soul and mind and strength is a challenge for us today. Because there are lots of things that we love and treasure, and rightly so. We have many good gifts from God. The command that God gives us is to love him and treasure him above all other things. And we can place our trust in him in ways that we are not to place our trust in other things. And we're to treasure what we do have from God as an expression of his love for us. And the problem that we all have, brothers, is that we tend to put things above God. We treasure them more. We love them more. We trust them more. They become what the Bible calls idols in our lives. And so this, this challenge that Jesus receives from a scribe is, is still a challenge for us as well. That what is it that we're going to love the most is the question. Augustine put it, put it well when he said this, quote, He loves thee too little who loves anything together with thee, which he loves not for thy sake. Let me say it again. He loves thee too little, who loves anything together with thee, which he loves not for thy sake. And it's true that we'll only love God to the point and to the extent that we know him, and we'll only truly know God through Jesus Christ. So we come to the, the very end of this passage, verses 35 to 44, where there's a third challenge and also a warning and an example. Well, let me start with the the third challenge, because this challenge doesn't come from one of the enemies of Christ, doesn't come from the Pharisees or the Herodians or the Sadducees or the scribes. It comes from Jesus himself. It says, and as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribes say that Christ is the Son of God? David himself and the Holy Spirit declared, 
The Lord said to my Lord, sit in my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he the son? And the great throng heard him gladly. So this third challenge, which comes from Jesus, is really a challenge about who he is. Just imagine Jesus has been in the temple during these challenges he's receiving from these other groups of people. He's been teaching, he's been interacting. No doubt people have probably been wondering, well, who is he really? Uh, we, we hear what the Pharisees say and what the Sadducees say and what the scribes are saying, but, but who is he really? And so Jesus using Psalm 110, offers a challenge of his own. He says if there's he says there's someone in this passage that David refers to as my lord. There's someone that David, the greatest king, the the one from whose line comes the Messiah, there's someone that David says is greater. Someone who is apparently senior to him, not just a junior descendant. Who could it be? How do we know? Jesus kind of poses a riddle he doesn't totally explain it, but he implies the idea that Messiah is going to be something far greater than the way what they were expecting. Someone far greater than whom they're looking for. It will not be a junior descendant of David. It will be David's Lord. That's the Messiah. He's extending a different kind of kingdom, not just David's kingdom, extending for more generations. It's the very kingdom of God showing up in human form in Jesus. Because Psalm 10, 110, you might know, goes on to call this one, whom David says is Lord, a priest forever, who sits at God's right hand, who executes judgment among the nations. Jesus, even there, is executing authority in the temple because he has ownership of the temple. The temple is for him. And so Jesus, in this little challenge of his own, call short those who thought too little of what Messiah would look like, of who he would be. And after that, Jesus, in what Mark puts together in this next section, gives a warning. It's about the scribes. This is what he says. He says, in his teaching, he said, Beware the scribes, who like to walk around in long robes and like greeting in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive their condemnation. Now, scribes here are those who are known as the experts of the law, the legal experts who could understand the law and explain it, who could exposit scripture, was what we would say it. But they had become, as Jesus says, pompous and self-righteous, they were not so longer occupied or preoccupied with the glory of God. They were more preoccupied with their own law and their own freedom to be seen as glorious in other people's sight. So instead of being experts in the law of God, they became experts in making themselves look good. They stood out, the scribes of the day, by wearing white linen robes with a, a mantle, white mantle, that, that reached to the feet, was adorned with fringe. So they stood out as they walked through the marketplace, as they entered the temple, and they, when they went to an event, they would often receive uh, lots of, of honor. People would literally bow down to them or would stand respectfully when they walked by. Their words had sovereign authority. They were greeted with titles like rabbi, 
the highest places at events and banquets were, re were usually reserved for them. They received more honor than those who were older or even parents. Uh, in the synagogue, they had the seat of honor up front, right in front of the booth that held the, the Torah scrolls. Jesus sees these, these scribes, and he sees that their role in, in the culture, in the society of first century Israel, is, a, is one that interprets God's law. But these aren't the guys that Jesus says you need to listen to. You know, there's always a temptation in the church to honor those who do things, uh, to show respect, and that's that's a good thing. I'm happy to receive respect and take some honor. I don't deserve any, but I'll take a little. Uh, but what happens for those of us who are in ministry is that when we receive respect or honor, it's very easy for us to think that becomes part of our personal piety, that somehow now I am proven worthy enough to be in this position, or maybe I'm even better than others because I'm in this position. What set Jesus apart was his constant focus, not on himself, but on the Father. He never used his power to gain a, a personal following. He always pointed back to his Father. He only did his Father's will. He was always on the same page with the Father. He didn't try to gain anything except the honor and glory of his Father. He came to serve, to give his life, as a ransom for many, we know. So Jesus, warning of the scribes, could simply say, look at me. He doesn't say that, but he could, because he was totally different from them. They tried to interpret the law of God in a way that would make them look good. Jesus is the word of God himself. He is always good. And so finally in this passage, we come to this example at the end of chapter 12 of, of Mark. This is what Jesus has do does and what he says. Says he sat down opposite the treasury. This is in the temple. He sits down in the, in the area where the treasury box is that receives the offerings as people walk by, putting them in. And he watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly, I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those that are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all that she had to live on. Now, that's a pretty extreme contrast, this widow and her offering, from the scribes that he warns, warns about right before this. Scribes who parade around in special outfits, receiving honor, having people stand when they walk by, having people listen to every word they say. Here's a, a widow who walks by with just two small coins, two co coins that were worth probably just the fraction of a Roman shekel. Uh, it says, Jesus says that they add up to a penny. They may not have even added up to that much. It may have been like a quarter cent in terms of actual value. She puts in just a fraction. It's all she has. She could have kept one, given one, kept one. That's a pretty pretty big tithe, 50%. She does it. She keeps it all. Jesus points her out and says, this woman is an amazing example. He says the most astonishing thing. He says, truly, this poor woman has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. Mark tells us that lots of people have been going by putting in large gifts. We know in our culture that it's 
the large donors that get most of the honor and the glory. It's those who get and bring big gifts to other places or nonprofits or wherever they're giving who receive the glory. If, if you're a large donor, you get the opportunity to name a scholarship after yourself or a building after yourself or whatever it is. It's the large donors who get the glory. It's those that are written up first in the annual report of giving and have special titles given them in terms of the type of giving that they are. The President's Club, the, the Leaders Club. It's those that we honor who give big gifts. Jesus here is honoring the one who gives the smallest gift, a fraction, a tiny fraction of what most people were probably giving. They contributed out of their abundance, Jesus says. But she, out of her poverty, has put everything she had, everything she had to live on, into the offering. You know, it is a reminder, I think, that there's a big difference between the way God looks at our lives and our gifts and the way we do. We can think the, the big major donors are the most important. God looks at the heart. God looks at what's inside. That's what's most important to him. And so our call to discipleship is to surrender everything we have, great or small. The amount seems not to matter if two small coins from a widow is, is larger than any big gift given that day in the temple. We know that perhaps the way we value things is upside down from the way the kingdom values things. So we come to the end of chapter 12 of Mark's journey and showing us how to suffer and to serve like our Savior. And he's done it by giving us three warnings, two from Jesus's enemies, one from Jesus himself. And then he shows us kind of a, a warning, uh, two challenge, three challenges, excuse me, and then a warning and then an example. What does that all mean? Well, it ends the chapter, but Jesus, remember, has been in the temple and he's been teaching and interacting with all these people. And people are wondering what's going to happen next. What's going to happen at the temple? What's going to happen to Jesus? Mark is telling us that God has shown up in the temple in the form of Jesus, and he's declared judgment on who's in charge because he's warned about those who are running the show and saying not to trust them. And he's claiming for himself the highest authority in the temple, in the word, in the world. What's going to happen at the temple? What's going to happen with Jesus? Stay tuned for next week. Hope you guys have a great week.